We have been um, walking through the letter to the Thessalonians. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this book, this letter, um, to them, this church and the churches around the area of Thessalonica. And we have been calling this series Counterculture because we find Paul calling this church really to some aspects of living differently, living against the culture and the social norms that surround them. And in our first um, message, we talked about affliction and encouragement. And Paul even uses the words that they had become afflicted by the word and afflicted for the word and that this affliction pushed them to a faith, pushed them to a hope, pushed them to a special trust in God and that they were to encourage one another even in their affliction. And then last time we talked about the day of the Lord, this anticipation of the second coming of Christ and that uh, we are to put our hope in that which is coming and to be busy about the proclamation of the good news. And then uh, Paul said to comfort one another with the words and with the idea that the day of the Lord is coming. Today we're going to be taking a look at this passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5 when um, the, Paul describes a countercultural set of attributes, um, these attributes that will help um, you to think differently than the world around you, that will help you to develop a faith that's different than those around you. And we find four specific attributes outlined in these verses. The first attribute I want to look at in, is, the, is a countercultural honor. Countercultural honor. It says in verses 12 and 13, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Here we find Paul describing this countercultural honor that's due. Now here he's talking about your spiritual leaders. He was talking about the pastors and those who labor among them in these churches and that they are to esteem them, that they're to give them honor because of the work that they do. Now I don't want to spend a whole lot of time necessarily focused on who you should be honoring like your pastor. I don't, I'm not here to push that kind of a thought. However, there is this need and this encouragement to understand tiers of leadership that are smart and are biblical. And when you look at um, whether you're looking at biblical examples or you're looking at societal examples, we find that Tiers of leadership are put in place for order, for organization, and for things to run well. Um, we find this biologically. We find this in the human body. We find order and organization and systems that that operate and work with one another. And you know whether we're talking about the Trinity, go to the very the base level of looking at God. God had God is one in three: God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All of them work 
working in unity, all of them working as one and yet with separate functions. And there was an order. There was a um, God. The father is the head of the Trinity and the and the son. Jesus took his directive from the father. He said, I don't do anything unless the father tells me to do that. I only do that which is in obedience to him. The Holy Spirit also was subjected even to the son. The son said, I if I don't go, the Holy Spirit can't come. There was an order there, even in the Trinity. We find um, in relationships, family relationships, husband and wife relationships, parent-child relationships, the Lord gives us an order that there is a head. The, the husband is to be the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. This is biblical order. It's things that function. It has nothing to do with equality. It has nothing to do with value. It has to do with order and how things work well. Moms and dads, if you've lost complete control and your kids are running the show, you need to realize that you are going to have problems because parents are called to be the lead. They're called to be the ones who take responsibility, the one who offer instruction. That is a role that moms and dads play in that parent-child relationship. We take a look biblically. Um, Israel, um, as they were coming out of Egypt, God placed them order. He said to Moses, um, you know, you need to set judges over the people. You can't do all the work yourself. You need to have judges that are over thousands and over hundreds and fifties and even tens. And he put them in order so that they can make rule. Um, government, military, you don't have to look very far to understand you need to have someone and then someone's and then others that are taking orders and following orders um, in order for you to have any kind of operation that's moving smoothly. Any business has one or two leaders that are in charge and are giving the instruction to managers and to those who are other leaders, clubs and teams and in the church order was given and God raised up and called people to be evangelists, pastors, teachers, apostles, um, the fivefold ministry gifts. He put people in charge. This is all part of the order. And here there's this instruction to give honor to those who are laboring among you. Have you ever been in an organization where there's a culture of disrespect, where people are speaking poorly of management, where people are speaking poorly of their spouse, where people are th speaking poorly of their parents or of those who are in charge of the organization. It's, it's chaos when you've got a disrespect operating. I'm sure you've experienced it. You don't have to look very far to find dysfunction and people um, disrespecting the leaders. Now, have you ever been in an organization where there is a culture of respect? There's a culture of honor. People giving respect to those who are in charge and making decisions. And when you are in that kind of environment, you can really feel the difference. There's a joy. There's a lightness. There's a there's a, a mission. There's an enthusiasm. There's an excitement. And whether you're talking about your marriage, you're talking about a church, you're talking about a business, you're talking about a government, when there is healthy respect for those who are in charge and leading you are going to find a culture where the leader wants to be a part of it and wants to give direction. And you might say, well, in my organization, in my world, my leaders aren't worthy of respect. 
And maybe you've got a valid point. Maybe there's things that are happening and decisions being made that you don't agree with and maybe are not even right. But there's something to be said that you can be a person who establishes honor as a piece of the culture, whether you are from a a leadership role or you're from a follower role, you can be one that brings honor to the mix. And when you bring honor to your marriage or you bring honor to your business or to your employer, you bring honor to your church, what ends up happening is those leaders respond and want to also be honorable. They, they, they respond to respect. And sometimes you've got to make the decision to respect someone who's not been behaving very respectable. And what ends up happening is you end up inspiring respectable behavior. Now, maybe you are someone who is in charge. Maybe you're the head of an organization or the head of a relationship. You need to realize that as you offer respect to those who are following you, that also might Um, create this culture of honor. You honor those who are serving, honor those who are working, those who are doing the work, honoring your spouse. These things create an environment where God is honored, where, where things begin to happen, where movement takes place, and it's pretty awesome. But we do not live in an honoring culture typically. In fact, if you decide that you want to take the lead in some role, you you need to expect that there's going to be ridicule. There's going to be people that are automatically do not like you and are just waiting for you to mess up. That is true. That is a part of the world that we live in. Um, In fact, if you want to take a lead in a political sense, you're going to be forced to say you're going to be a D or you're going to be an R or you're going to be an independent. And all of those choices are going to come with automatically a group of people that just assume that you're a bad person or that you don't make good decisions or that you disagree with them. And that's part of being a leader. You're going to have that crit- that criticism. But within your organization, within the, the sphere of influence that you have, if you can create a, a culture of honor, you're going to see that organization or that relationship go somewhere special. And many people are looking for leaders who establish a culture of honor and leaders are looking for people who understand what honor and respect are all about. The church has got to be different than what you see go on in most organizations. The church God is is ordained and established by men and women who he raises up and who he anoints. And it is very important for the church to have an environment of honor. I think at Rochester Life, we do a pretty good job of having mutual respect for everyone involved. And we want to keep that culture rich. We want to keep that culture of honor um, and, and compliment and encouragement very real among us. And it's counter cultural. Our culture does not understand honor real well. And so I want to encourage us to create a culture of honor. And then it goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 5 that there's this counterculture cooperation. It's very similar to this honoring idea, but God calls his church to cooperate one with another and in so doing cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Let's read what it says. It says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint hearted, uphold the weak and be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. 
Isn't that a neat description of the kind of community that you would want to be a part of? Don't you want to be a part of a community that, that uh, is encouraging and, and holds people accountable in a loving way? This is a great description. And in here we find four groups that need special attention. Four groups of people within the church that need special attention. The first one was the group of, that, that were unruly. Well, that's a special group, isn't it? The unruly group. You've probably been around. You've probably got, um, you know, your minds going to particular people that fall in the unruly camp. But here it says, here it says to warn the unruly, to warn them. And another word that we can put there is love. To love them, to warn them is to love them, to, to give concern about what's coming, to warn them about where their behavior is taking them, or they're fighting or they're backbiting. You warn them, you love them, because you want the best for them and you want the best for the whole. Another group that's mentioned is the faint-hearted. And what does it say to do with this special group? The faint-hearted says to comfort them. So you come alongside with um, words of hope, words of, hey, this is going to turn out for your good. This is going to turn out if we trust God for these things. If we pray for one another, we're going to see this thing work out for your good and for God's good and for the good of everybody. You comfort. Another word for comfort is love. You love them the faint-hearted. Another group was the weak. So in every organization, you're going to have those who are weaker than others. And here it says that you uphold the weak. That's what we're uh, encouraged to do is to uphold them. In other words, love them. We need to love the weak, uphold them where, where they're falling short or where they don't think that they can uh, you know, carry their own weight. We come alongside and we uphold them. We, we surround them with others who can. And then there's this last group that's mentioned here, this special needs group. It's all, everybody, everybody's also included as a special group that needs something. And it says to be patient with all, everybody is going to mess up. Everybody is going to um, not be a, a part of the program all the time. There's going to be someone who needs to have patience given to them. Another word is love. We are called here to cooperate one with another. The church needs to be, is going to be filled with unruly people and faint-hearted people and weak people. And every single one of us are going to need patience from time to time. And the church needs to be great about saying we are in this together and we love the people around us regardless of what might be going on. And when we have an environment of love, one for another and cooperation, working together, all with a purpose of honoring God, loving God, loving people, you're going to see some, something special take place. And that's what we're called to do. To this uh, group in Thessalonica, Paul says also encourages them to have a countercultural attitude. A countercultural attitude. It says in verse 16 through 18, it says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Boy, this is, this is a, a few verses all about your attitude. And we're called here to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and giving thanks in everything. A typical assumption regarding this attitude of that is maybe associated with this phrase counterculture. You know, may, think about that, that group that, that maybe you've called a countercultural group, and you might have assigned some words to that countercultural group. Um, maybe anger, 
injustice, violence. These are words that maybe describe a counterculture. But these have to do with um, um, these attitudes, anger, injustice, and, and violence have almost become mainstream attitudes in the society that you and I live. Um, the world is filled with anger and injustice and violence. And so we almost become countercultural if we bring in the scripture here that Paul brings us, and that is a culture of rejoicing, a culture of unceasing prayer, um, a culture of thanks. If these become our attitudes, if these become our oh, modus operandi, if this has become what the church is all about, rejoicing always, unceasing prayer, giving thanks in all circumstances, these countercultural um, attitudes are going to be seen a mile away. I've, uh, I've found myself in different conversations, maybe out in public, and I've had different people coming up and just engaging at my table from overhearing the conversations going on. I think there's a hunger in our society right now for people who have these particular attributes, these particular attitudes, rejoicing and prayerfulness and thanksgiving. A person that has those things is noticed, and people are hungry for something different than what they see because they see depression, they see mental illness, they see discouragement, they see people backbiting with each other. This is what's going on in their culture, in their world. And they want to be around people and they want to hear about a hope. And that comes from a group of people that are rejoicing and that are praying and that are filled with thanks, even in tough circumstances. It's a countercultural attitude. And then Paul concludes this portion of scripture describing a countercultural spirituality. A countercultural spirituality. There's a lot of people claiming to be spiritual these days. It's kind of a buzzword. There's a lot of people that are, um, you know, into mysticism and a lot of people that are looking to, um, you know, the stars and astrology and all kinds of stuff to get some answers from the cosmic, you know, realm. But here we find Paul calling us to a countercultural spirituality. And describe. I want to. I want to read a description of the spirit realm. This comes from a guy named Shafe, um, Shane Rayner, and he, he does a pretty nice description of the spiritual realm in contrast to the physical realm that we get to see. The Bible tells us that, this is him speaking, the Bible tells us that faith is the reality of what we hope for, the proof of what we don't see. We find that in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It also says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we don't focus on the things that can be seen, but on the things that can't be seen. The things that can be seen don't last, but the things that can't be seen are eternal. It appears that the old saying, seeing is believing, just doesn't cut it in the kingdom of God. There's a reality that's visible and one that's invisible. Somewhere you'll find angels, demons, and the souls and spirits of people who have died. Some of those entities seem to be able to interact with our world as well as their own, in some cases simultaneously. Could it be possible that the spiritual realm exists parallel to the physical? Are there invisible dimensions right here along with ones we can see? If so, that would explain a lot. 
Rainer goes on to say, human beings also have visible and invisible components. The Bible refers to each of us as having a body, a soul, and a spirit. The visible part, the body, is fairly easy to understand, but the invisible part consists of both the soul and the spirit. It's not easy to tell where the dividing line is between the two, but Hebrews 4.12 seemed to make this a point. You might want to look that up sometime. I generally think of the soul as consisting of things like the intellect, will, and emotions. The spirit, on the other hand, is the part of us that's equipped to perceive and interact with the spiritual realm and to commune with God himself. Perhaps it also includes things like conscience or intuition. The point to all this, Rainer says, is that a discussion of spiritual and supernatural topics should start with the understanding that humans are both physical and spiritual beings. We live between two worlds, and we're caught in the middle of a war between two kingdoms. The challenge for the church is to teach believers how to navigate all these interactions. And Rainer asks this question, why is it so hard to believe in the things that we can't see? You see, the Bible's very clear clear that there is a spirit realm that's at work all the time. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians that the that battle that our battles are not between flesh and blood, but against principalities and 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 powers. And you and I um, are called to somehow navigate this physical world with a spiritual sense, with a connection between God and ourselves. That we are connected in a spiritual way as we navigate this physical world. And so I want to read what Paul says to the Thessalonians in our main text, verse 19 through 22 says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things, hold fast what is good, and abstain from evil from every, um, abstain from every form of evil, is what it says. So here we find a few different ways in which we interact with the spirit realm. And the first one is this. It says, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. What does this mean? Well, simply it means do not deny the spirit. Um, or don't explain away the spiritual as coincidental. See, a lot of people just want to ignore the spirit realm. Ignore God. Ignore angels, demons. Ignore anything that has eternal consequence. Just quench the spirit. Just pour water on anything that even sounds like it's not scientific or it's not explainable or it's not seeable. And we're, we're encouraged to not do that. And yet you and I can sometimes fall prey to trying to um, find scientific answers that are real and explainable, eliminating God from the equation. But we're encouraged not to do that. It also says, it says, do not despise prophecies. Well, what's this all about? I think it comes down to rejecting God's work in our lives. You might acknowledge that there is God. You might acknowledge there's a spirit realm. But here we're encouraged to not despise prophecies. We need to accept God's work in our lives. In fact, we've got to hunger for it. We've got to go after it rather than to despise prophecies, um, despise God's work, despise God's plan. We've got to embrace God's plan instead. But then it goes on to say, test all things. He says, test all things. In other words, we need to hold spiritual messages, message from God, the word of God, the prophetic word, God's work in our lives. We need to hold it up to God's word. We need to say, okay, 
the Holy Spirit seems to be speaking this. Someone being led by the Holy Spirit encouraged me in this way or spoke this word over me. Let's see if it lines up with the Bible. We're encouraged to test things out. Maybe we bring another trusted friend who also is spiritually minded and say, hey, this was just spoken to me or I sense God leading me in this way. How does, how does this line up with what you think? Can you pray about that with me? Test all things. We do that primarily with God's word, but also trust, trusted men and women who we know love God and are in tune with him and his word too. Then it goes on to say, hold fast to what is good. Spiritual people are going to seek to love God's work and his ways. We need to desire God's work in our lives. Hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to the way that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. And then it finishes out abstain from evil. And here we seek to minimize the things that we formerly love. You see, before we knew God, before we had accepted his work on the cross, we had things in this world, things in our flesh that we loved. And here we go, we're called to abstain from evil, abstain from the thing that the Bible calls out as sin. And we've got to minimize those things that we formerly love. And that's a work that we really need to, to really ask the Holy Spirit to lead us in and to provide for us. So as we conclude here, there's these counter-cultural attributes that Paul calls us to. A culture of honor, a culture of cooperation, a culture of an attitude that's filled with thanks and rejoicing and prayer. And then he calls us to a culture of spirituality. These are, these are attributes that really will go against what's going on in the world that you live. They're counter-cultural. So we need to pray for these. We need to choose these and we need to believe the Lord for these. These are the things that God wants to work into our lives. And friends, if we can join in in this call to the Thessalonica church, if we would um, join in with, with Paul's calling this church to and we would take them in, we're going to see God do special things in our lives and through our lives, in our church and through our church. We're going to see something special happen with a culture of honor, cooperation, attitude attitude, and spirituality. You see, we can, if we leave any of those things out, we're going to see the church hurt. You're going to see yourself hurt. And so we want to have all of these working in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray right now for every person here, myself included. I pray for our church family. God, we want to have this kind of culture in our lives, in our, in our church, in the organizations we're a part of, in our marriages, in our families, in our businesses, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that there would be a culture of honor and and cooperation, Lord, that we would have the attitude and the mind of Christ filled with thanks and rejoicing. I pray, Lord God, that in every organization we're a part of, that we would realize that there's a spiritual uh, component that is so real in every single one of our entities. Lord, I don't want to lead my family. I don't want to lead the church. I don't want to lead a, a business. I don't want to do any of this, oh Lord. I don't want to be a parent without realizing that you are um, in charge of all of it, Lord. I want you to be 
the head and I want to submit to you, Lord God. And Lord, those that the things that I'm in charge of, I pray, God, that I would be able to show honor and respect and love and attitude and spirituality, Lord God. All of this, Lord, I want at work in my life. And so, Lord, I know that's true of every person who's with me right now, every person who's praying with me. I just pray, God, that these attributes, these countercultural attributes would grow in each and every one of their lives and in the settings that they're in, the relationships that they're in, the organizations that they're in. And Lord God, for sure for our church family. Lord God, help us to see all of this in operation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.